Hey there, I'm WFAE politics reporter Steve Harrison, and this is WFAE's Inside Politics Election 2022 podcast. Thanks for joining us for our inaugural episode. We're going to discuss the political maps in place for North Carolina's congressional and legislative races. We'll be joined by J. Michael Bitzer, a politics and history professor at Catawba College and author of Redistricting and Gerrymandering in North Carolina, Battle Lines in the Tar Heel State. Gerrymandering used to be the idea of packing some voters or cracking some voters and favoring one party over the other. Well, the voters have helped out the map makers because we have sorted ourselves. And then we'll assess the state of North Carolina's Democratic and Republican parties and their challenges. We'll talk to Democratic political consultant Ayesha Du. In our urban areas, there's a concentration of people who come from larger cities, right? So then they come to Charlotte and that creates a a larger amount of uh, Democrats. And Larry Shaheen, a Republican consultant. I mean, look, you've got historic issues in in, in, in the urban areas. You've got disconnectedness from, from, from elected officials to their voters. But first, a little bit about me and my co-hosts of this podcast and what we aim to do. Both Jim Morrill and Tim Funk are former colleagues of mine when we were all at the Charlotte Observer. But now we're all together here in Studio A at WFAE's offices in University City. So we're going to take just a little bit to tell you about who we are and what we've done and what we want to do with this podcast. Uh, Jim, you ready to go first? Yeah, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. So I worked at the Observer for almost 40 years, and uh, I started in the early 80s and uh, covered city council and uh, Harvey Gant's first election as mayor. And then uh, went to Raleigh and covered uh, the General Assembly and then came back to Charlotte and covered politics. You know, it's been a great run. Uh, We've been to a bunch of conventions. Uh, I got to cover the two giants of North Carolina politics, uh, Jesse Helms and Jim Hunt. You know, I just wanted to say how much uh, I've seen and we've seen North Carolina and Charlotte change. When When I first started covering Charlotte back in the early 80s, it was a very bipartisan town. Republicans could get elected to the city council and the county commission. Of course, that's changed. Uh, Charlotte and Mecklenburg County are now pretty, pretty much Democratic strongholds. And at the same time, paradoxically almost, North Carolina's changed the other way. It's gone uh, from a strong Democratic state. And now we hear every four years during presidential elections that North Carolina's one of a half a dozen swing states. And uh, Tim, do you want to jump in and and tell us a little bit about what you've done? Well, I spent most of my journalism career at The Observer. I started off in the Raleigh Bureau, where I covered the governor's office, the legislature, hurricanes. Um, Later, I was The Observer's Washington correspondent, where I covered John Edwards' first campaign for president and then vice president. Over the years, I also covered other beats at The Observer, race and immigration, TV and radio, faith and values, all beats that really intersect a lot these days with politics. In fact, if you tell me what church, synagogue, or mosque you attend, I can probably make a pretty educated guess about your politics. But Steve, what about you? I mean, fill us in. You've been here at WFE for a while. Uh, what? What's the deal? So I've been uh, in journalism for about 25 years. I worked at the Miami Herald for 10 years out of college and then worked with you guys at the Charlotte Observer um, for about 14 years. And then about three and a half years ago, made the switch from newspapers over here to WFAE. 
it is a uh, tremendous learning curve to uh, <laughs> go from writing to getting behind the mic and, and trying to sound somewhat comfortable with it and getting to a point where people don't immediately turn the channel when you come on. When I was at The Observer, I covered city council for a long time. And here at WFAE, I still cover that, still cover a lot of local politics, but also things out of Raleigh, things out of Washington and how they impact Charlotte. So Jim and Tim, you guys came to us with this idea of sitting down and doing a podcast and kind of uh, going a little deeper. And so why don't you guys tell us what's on your mind and what do you want to accomplish with this? You know, Tim and I are both retired. We're kind of like Tom Brady. We, we couldn't stay retired. We wanted to get back in the game. <laughs> There's so much going on this year that I think it's a natural pull for each of us to be involved at some level with all the campaigns that are going on. And there's so much, and you guys have alluded to this, but, um, you know, here in Charlotte, we have the question of whether Patrick Cannon can get back, get elected back on council after having been in prison. You know, statewide, we have a question of whether Donald Trump's word carries much weight and how much weight it carries anymore. What I like is that we're not going to just be yakking among ourselves. We're going to bring in some really good guests. Like we've got Michael Bitzer on today. And he's, he, re- he wrote the book about redistricting in North Carolina, literally. And, uh, and then we've got some real savvy political uh, operatives to talk about the Democratic and Republican races. All right, so let's get to it. The 2022 election got off to a familiar start a political and legal debate over political maps. The state Supreme Court rejected the new Republican-drawn maps, saying they were unfair partisan gerrymanders. The legal fight delayed the primary election by two months. Republican lawmakers drew new congressional and legislative maps. The court upheld the legislative maps and drew new congressional districts that will likely only be used for this election. Joining us now is J. Michael Bitzer. He's the author of the book, Redistricting and Gerrymandering in North Carolina, Battle Lines in the Tar Heel State. He's also a politics and history professor at Catawba College. It's a great honor to be on the inaugural podcast. <laughs> and we are so glad you were here. So, Jim and Tim, you guys want to get started? I'll, I'll take it. So we finally have new maps about new voting distri- districts, but they aren't going to be uh, in, in effect a long time. Aren't they just going to be a one-off and won't the General Assembly have to start all over again next year? Exactly. We're going to be back into the midst of redistricting probably a little under a year from now. Um, What the court issued in its order was that the congressional maps would hold through the November 2022 elections until the legislature redraws them. So certainly the legislature could say, you know what, we're just going to keep these maps for the rest of the decade and end it. But the likelihood, in fact, I would say the strong or high likelihood is that they will come back into session, depending on who is in control of the legislature, and redraw the congressional maps. And also, this is dependent upon who wins the two seats on the state Supreme Court as well, along with another potential dynamic, and that is the U.S. Supreme Court. So we can talk more about the intricacies of all this, but for right now, we do have congressional uh, districts. The state legislative districts are done we, we believe for the next decade, pending any future lawsuits, and we always have to say that about North Carolina politics, but right now, we're pretty clear until November of 2022 
once January of 2023 rolls around, it could be another ball game all entirely. So are you really saying that if the Republicans keep control of the legislature and win a majority on the state Supreme Court, that we could have a map that lets uh, House Speaker Tim Moore finally get his congressional seat? And would that mean that Jeff Jackson is a one-term congressman? Uh, it could be Jeff Jackson. It could be a, a whole host of potential Democrats that get elected uh, this November. You know, the way that I kind of look at these maps, uh, we are definitely dealing with at least seven districts that look like they should go Republican probably six districts that look like they should go Democratic this fall, and one district that's particularly competitive, and that's the new 13th, which is just south of Raleigh. But as you said, if Republicans keep control of the General Assembly and they win at least one of the two seats on the state Supreme Court to flip that majority from a 4-3 Democratic to a 4-3 Republican, we could see a new congressional map come out of a Republican legislature that honestly makes 10 to four Republican to Democrat look like a Democrat's dream. <laughs> it could go 11-3. The sense that I get from Republicans is that there will be payback for this particular decision by the Democratic majority on the state Supreme Court that instituted this new congressional districts map. And I think that there, there will be some really uh, interesting designs behind that new map if Republicans control everything and get a favorable decision from the U.S. Supreme Court regarding what we call the independent state legislature doctrine, basically saying all power for redistricting and election laws belongs to a state legislature. State courts cannot get involved, and this could open the door for a really harsh partisan gerrymandering come 2023. Michael, I, I want to piggyback off what you said about payback. I mean, do you think that Republicans, uh, that their anger has been fueled by that when they were forced to redraw their map, they put out that 644 map that favored them in six seats, the Democrats in four, four toss-ups. Um, you could argue, I mean, it was a much better map, much more fair than their first attempt. 644, when the Democrats rejected that, do you think that decision has kind of heightened their anger, so to speak? that they put forth a pretty decent map, maybe not perfect, and, and that was shot yeah. down as well? Yeah, I, I think that first remedial map that the legislature did was actually a, a map that uh, typified the nature of competitiveness. If you look at how the districts would have voted in 2020 using a variety of election returns, you're right. There could have been four competitive congressional districts in North Carolina. And by my estimate, that would have been the largest number of competitive districts in one state of all 50 states in the country. So if that map had gone into effect, we would have had the competitive dynamic that a lot of people are arguing should be reflected in the congressional maps. What the court came out with, it seems like to me, 
was a proportionality map that Republicans get X number, Democrats get X number, and there is one kind of swing district that could go either way, and that could decide the kind of proportionality in a 50-50 kind of a state. I think that that when that second map, that court-ordered map came out, you know, just reading the tea leaves, reading the, the tweets uh, from, from various Republican operatives and others, they, they saw that as a real attack on the legislature's power. And the legislature was trying to do the right thing, they would argue. And the court came back and, and basically slapped it aside and instituted their own map. I think that that is kind of at the heart and crux of where we are with this anger from Republicans. Michael, let me ask you about the map we're going to be voting on this year, or not voting on this year, but voters will go the current map. Uh, mm-hmm. There's only one truly swing district. Is gerrymandering diluting the power of moderate and independent voters? In 13 of these districts, the real elections will likely be the primaries where candidates will be rewarded for going far to the right or far to the left. And then they go to Washington and compromise on nothing. More philosophical question. What do, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that there's a great debate in in the civic mind of what is the role of gerrymandering in our polarized political environment? And I'm actually teaching a course on polarization in U.S. politics right now this semester. And one of the articles that I had the students read was gerrymandering is not really the issue when it comes to polarization, Mm. that we the voters have polarized ourselves, that we live in like-minded communities. And in some research that I've done on North Carolina precincts, kind of the building blocks of these districts, what I found was 70% of all the precincts across North Carolina, and that's a little over 2,600 of them, 70% of them are landslide precincts, meaning they voted for one party over the other at a level of 60% or greater. And so what I would contend is gerrymandering used to be the idea of packing some voters or cracking some voters and favoring one party over the other. Well, honestly, the way that I read it, the voters have helped out the map makers because we have sorted ourselves. Mm. And I think so much of the dynamic of voter loyalty, the partisan intensity that we have, uh, we have very few swing voters. We have very few competitive areas. I think gerrymandering exacerbates the problem. But, you know, as we've just survived the Ides of March, I would have to say the fault, dear Brutus, does not lie in the lines of the districts, but it lies with the voters. We have done it to ourselves. And I think we are continuing to do that. And that's going to have that ripple effect on how you draw districts and how they behave politically. What other political podcast do you hear Shakespeare quoted? I I mean, I rest my case. (laughs) Well, we got to bring some class (laughs) to the inaugural one. You know, I don't know what Shakespeare said about legislative districts, but uh, we know they're important too. And we've talked about congressional districts. Uh, I understand that Republicans have a pretty good shot at keeping the legislature, both houses of the legislature. But what are the chances do you think that 
they'll get super majorities again that could really cripple Roy Cooper for the last couple of years of his term. I think that the state Senate is the most likely to be in Republican hands for sure. 2022 is going to be a Republican-leaning year. Uh, We know that from midterm fundamentals. We know that the president's party oftentimes suffers at the polls in midterms. Joe Biden's approval rating is in the mid to low 40s. That's just not a favorable environment to be begin with. The way that I look at the districts in the state Senate, we're probably talking about maybe 26, 27, fairly assured Republican districts. What they need is, is, you know, to move up into the 30s. And that could be done potentially in the competitive but Democratic lean districts. I think the tougher chamber is going to be in the state house. And if things played out as they did in 2020 with the presidential U.S. Senate and gubernatorial elections. If those were replicated this year, those elections were replicated in these new state house districts, it could conceivably be a 60-60 tie. Now, I don't think it's going to be a 60-60 tie because, again, Republicans should be favored to win some competitive districts that lean slightly to the Democratic side. But if they get up into you know, the high 60s, into the low 70s, then you're talking about supermajority status that could be favorable to to the control of the Republicans at super majority levels. But I'm not real sure that many of those districts are necessarily going to move so far that that's going to be happening in the state house. Could happen in the state Senate. I'm not real convinced right now that the state house is at super majority play. So I think in that conversation, I I think there were some really interesting stuff. One about how we've self-sorted ourselves just by where we live, who we are, who we like to surround ourselves with. And I think there's this, I think another thing kind of worth talking about is this idea of like, which map was more fair, a map that divvies up the seats proportion on proportional representation where the Republicans get seven, the Democrats get six versus one where there are a lot of seats that can go either way. And I don't know what you guys think. I mean, that's we hear that so much in, in national media and politics, how what we need are more swing districts. We need moderate voters to have a greater say. North Carolina was close, had that chance, and then we've kind of moved away from that. Of course, Republicans would love for that to be the year, this to be the year where they do that, because this is likely to be a Republican year. So they'll win some of those swing, swing districts. Uh, another year, my Democrats might win them. I think that's why you see the Republicans so eager to uh, go that approach. You know, there's never been a lot of competition for Congress anyway. I mean, if you look back at history, you know, 90 or 95 percent of, of incumbents of either party get reelected, you know, and that's because uh, they're incumbents. People know who they are and because they have a lot of money and they have access to a lot of money. So it, it's uh, it's different to have any competitive districts, really. I think one thing in the, in the in the whole process about uh, we were fighting over the maps, fighting over the first or the first Republican attempt at a do over, and then the ultimate the court imposed map. There was this idea of keeping communities of interest together. I've kind of looked at these maps so many times that 
I think to have truly competitive seats that are 50-50, where the Democrats can have a chance and the Republicans can have a chance, I think almost by the very nature, you are going to put strange communities together. You're going to put hog farmers paired with suburban voters in Raleigh. You're going to put uh, West Charlotte with Gaston County. I mean, I don't know what you guys think. That's you know, America. That's, that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the basis of, uh, you know, that's sort of your civics 101. You know, people get to get along and find compromises with each other. You know, if you live in a rural area, you live in the city, you find things that uh, you have in common and at least find compromises. And I think the, the ability or the inability anymore to find compromises and for people to work together is, is part of our big problem. I remember writing the story about the 2016 presidential race for the Observer. And I look at the map of North Carolina and it's just this sea, this ocean really of red with these little blue islands where the urban counties are. It's really an urban rural divide with some up for grabs or some of the suburban and somewhat the exurban counties. So people are living, you know, they say people live and move next to people who agree with them politically. It's really crazy in a way. You know, it's like talking to yourself, you know. Well, that was a good point that uh, Dr. Bitzer made about uh, self-sorting. There was a book that came out a few years ago called The Big Sort that was about just that, about how people, you move to where people are like you. Now we're going to discuss political lines and how the political environment is shaping races in the Democratic and Republican parties. In the race where political maps don't matter at all, the U.S. Senate race for the seat being vacated by retiring Senator Richard Burr. Aisha Du is a Democratic consultant and Larry Shaheen is a consultant for Republican candidates. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to just start, talk about uh, kind of the state of play in both parties and the races coming up. And uh, Jim and Tim, what's on y'all's mind? wanted to talk about the Senate race, which is a pretty high-profile race in the country and a pretty uh, antagonistic race so far in the Republican primary where all the action is so far. And, Larry, I wanted to ask you, how bitter is it in the Republican Party? Uh, and you've got the you know the Club for Growth for Ted Budd spending mm-hmm. millions and millions of dollars against Pat McCrory, and Pat McCrory is starting to give back. I mean, how, is that division and bitterness going to hurt the party in the fall? No, not at all. I don't think that bitterness or division is going to be noticed by most people in the electorate. And furthermore, I think one of the things you'll see is it's already started. If you listen to podcasts and and, and folks on the right in terms of talking about what's important, you're seeing folks even, you know, as far on the right spectrum as Breitbart, all the way back to the National Journal, which it's hard to believe the National Journal is an establishment Republican place these days, but that's where we are. Um, They're all saying the same thing. We got to win in November. No matter who comes out of the primary, no matter what happens, what you've got on the Republican ballot will be better than what you've got on the Democrat ballot, because there is absolutely no way we can cure what ails this country with what's on the D side, considering they've been given a year and these are the results we got. And Aisha, let me just ask you, which candidate you'd rather face, you meaning Sherry Beasley, the Trump candidate or the other candidate? 
You know, I think that she can face either candidate. At the end of the day, uh, Sherry Beasley is competent. Uh, she is able to campaign and win on the statewide level. She's done it before. Uh, this last campaign, she only lost by, I think it was 402 votes. Um, and I think had she been willing to push, she could have found those, those votes through an extended process, but chose to move forward so that the state of North Carolina could move forward. I don't think, I hope we won't be in that position again. She'll be fine no matter which candidate she faces. Aisha, Sherry Beasley will go into the general election with the United Party, a bulging bank account, and an unblemished image. But this is a midterms and it's looking tough for Democrats. She's really only run for court posts, which are pretty sedate campaigns. Uh, Some Democrats worry that she's not maybe up for a rough and tumble with these Republicans who can get pretty, uh, pretty nasty sometimes. She's she's an attorney. She's had a rough and tumble her whole entire career. Um, So she'll be fine. She'll be able to take them on, take whoever it is on and be able to work with the United Party that knows that this is not going to be an easy election year. Midterms are never easy. Midterms for Democrats in North Carolina um, have never been easy. And so we're aware of that and we're aware of what's at stake. So that means that that we're, we're going to be behind her and really work to win this election. So uh, for her to have a pretty good chance in such a tough year, she'll have to energize African-American voters who are the most loyal Democratic voters. But uh, she has to energize them in a way they haven't really been since uh, 2008 when Barack Obama carried North Carolina. First of all, do you agree with that? She has to do that. And and what's she doing to make that happen? Is she going to bring Stacey Abrams or Barack Obama into the state? Or what do you think? Well, I'm not quite sure which uh, person she will bring into the state, but I know that uh, North Carolina is an important state. So that means that uh, the Democratic Party uh, locally and nationally will be ready to galvanize and and work for her and get behind her. So um, I can imagine that uh, an array of people from across the country uh, will come out. But, you know, I'm also going to say that I think there's so much at stake right now that essentially, we're also going to have a lot of grassroots organizing going on. So the big names are definitely important and help to pull big crowds. But we're going to have people who are at the local elected level also galvanizing their base. And uh, Black women voters have been a strong base for the Democratic Party. Um, You know, I work for Higher Heights for America, and we uh, support and endorse Black women. We're the political home for Black women. And uh, we galvanize Black women to turn out and vote. So there will be work, I think, happening from the from the bottom and the top and in the middle <laughs> throughout all of the, the party. So Lee, I want to um, jump in real quick with both of y'all and just kind of take a big picture looking at the state of both parties in North Carolina right now. Aisha, let me ask you, um, are there alarm bells going off in the party after what happened um, last year in Virginia, New Jersey, and then just a few weeks ago with the San Francisco school board election. Um, are there steps being taken to make sure that doesn't happen in November here? Well, what I can tell you is that um, Virginia was definitely alarming. It definitely, I think, galvanized people and helped folks to realize, right, that we really have to work hard for this midterm election. So it's not taken lightly and people are going to put in the work. Larry, similar question I ask Aisha. Do you expect Donald Trump to come to North Carolina and hold a rally for Bud and give McCrory a, a belittling nickname or... 
Will he stay away for fear that Bud may end up being a loser, which is the only label the former president can't abide? Well, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to tell you that he's already he's already come to North Carolina. He's already endorsed Ted Bud and did that at a Republican convention. Now, will he come back? I don't think so. Let's let's go through the numbers. Cook Political Report just moved the North Carolina Senate race from swing to leans Republican. You've got national un, national dissatisfaction with the national leadership, 70% unhappy with Biden over gas policy, 70% unhappy with Biden over inflation. You're going to see Republicans focus on the issues because they know that's what will win. Hey, let me turn the conversation to uh, local races. You know, there's one seemingly overriding question in in, uh, Charlotte races right now to me, and that's can can Patrick Cannon get get a seat on city council back? Can he get reelected after having been in prison for corruption? Aisha? Um, well, it, it wouldn't be the first time. Um, You're so, right about that. <laughs> um, I mean, at the end of the day, when you when you look at uh, the mountain hiker in South Carolina, when you look at um, uh, the the mayor in, I think it was D.C. I'm I'm losing names in this moment, but more than one. Marion Barry. The name That's you're looking for is Marion Barry. Oh, thank you, Larry. So (laughs) at the end of the day, people have gone to jail. People have come back. People have maintained connections with their community, asked for forgiveness, served their time and and gotten back to work. So what I will say is that um, in the world of possibility, it's not impossible. Okay, he can win. But do you think he will? I think it's possible. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you, you never can call it. This is not a race where we're just talking about Democrats and Republicans or we're just talking about one seat. We're talking about four seats and you're only talking about one of four seats. So if if you're asking if he could get one of four seats, I believe it's highly probable. Larry, what's what's your take from the other side? Look, I'm, I'm never I'm not going to say anything negative about Patrick. OK, I've known Patrick a long time. I have a lot of respect for him. I do not agree with what he did. But at the same time, you got to have forgiveness is what you're called for. Do I think it will make it more difficult for the Democrats in the city in 2022 to come November? Yes, I do. Do I think that that's not a message that I would want to have to defend in 2022? Yes, I think that's not a message, considering we they have so many more qualified candidates. I mean, Larkin Eggleston is, is, is about as perfect a candidate for at-large city councils exists in this world. And, and if he is denied an opportunity I would hate that for him. And I would hate to see, you know, any other, like Luana Mayfield is a perfectly reasonable candidate. I, I, I like Luana. You know, Zimple Ajmera, you've got, you've, got, you've got five really great candidates to pick from. And if I'm a Democrat, you know, you got to look at this from, is this his time for redemption? Maybe. Is it the right time for his redemption? I don't know. And, and luckily, I think that that's a situation that'll get determined in the primary Larry, let me ask you about a controversial candidate on your side of the street. Uh, is Madison Cawthorn in real trouble or is he like Trump, a celebrity candidate so popular with the base that he can get away with behavior that would doom other candidates? I hope he's in trouble. I hope he's in trouble and I hope he gets replaced because Chuck Edwards is a fabulous Republican candidate. And I think that Madison Cawthorn has shown himself to be more of a showman than a statesman. And we don't need any more showmen. Because I've given Madison Cawthorn as many opportunities as I possibly can to show that he is an individual of character. And he has refused to do that. And this latest comment about him siding with Putin against Ukraine, I can't support that. 
Not only can I not support that, every American shouldn't support that. You're talking about what, what Putin has done here is unconscionable, and, and he has invaded a sovereign nation. Siding with him or saying that he's right in any way and that Ukraine is corrupt, I, I don't care. No, you don't get to roll tanks into another country just because of that. So personally, do I think he do I, do I think there's a lot of folks that back him? Yes. Do I think that the folks that back him probably make up about 10% of the electorate that would decide to side with anyone against you know, most normal folks. Yeah, I kind of do. Uh, do I think he's going to run a robust campaign with a lot of money? Yeah, I do. But there are more than enough qualified individuals to replace him. Hey, Larry, quick question. Um, right now, as you know, we have one Republican in the Mecklenburg delegation, uh, no Republicans on the Mecklenburg County Commission. What are the chances that uh, somebody like a Bill Brawley in, in Southeast Mecklenburg can win his old CPAC? I think they're very good. If we see a return to a pre-2016 Republican Party support level from folks in the unaffiliated areas of Mecklenburg County, in the suburbs of Mecklenburg County, what you will see is likely District 42 in the Senate be competitive. That's the hunt. Whoever wins the Stone-Russo primary, Bill Brawley's seat will be competitive. I do not anticipate that Mint Hill seat being competitive, but you never know. That primary is going to be wild um, between Rodney Moore and Trisha Cotham. Um, and then school board. Look what happened in San Francisco with the school board. Anybody who thinks that the school board races aren't up for grabs in a couple of these seats are kidding themselves. The only thing that may protect these losers is that they gerrymandered their seats to protect themselves. Aisha, do you think uh, Democrats will keep control of the delegation and the county commission and these other seats? Or do you think uh, Republicans can uh, find a find a way in? You know, uh, as, a, as a strategist, you never take it for granted, right? You shouldn't assume that just because you want a majority, you keep a majority. Um, that being said, um, I think that it's very possible for Democrats to maintain the majority and also even for Christy Clark to come back. Um, I think it's all about communicating with voters, communicating with the people. And I still believe that Democrats represent people, that Democrats represent uh, issues that, that people discuss around their kitchen tables. And so at the end of the day, um, it's about communicating with voters and getting to people and having the conversations. And that includes Democrats, independ independents, and even some Republicans. So that means that that uh, between now and uh, the primary and then uh, for others for the general election, it's going to just be all about talking to people, talking to voters and making sure that that they get their message to the to the constituents. And um, Aisha and, and Larry, I'll ask uh, I'll ask both of you all this. Uh, we talk so much across the country and in North Carolina about a urban rural divide um, that really showed up in 2016. And then in 2020, it became even more evident, uh, you know, that the, the, the Republican support in the cities fell even farther. Democratic support in rural areas fell even farther than people thought was possible. Um, have we kind of bottomed out uh, on this this trend or or is there still kind of more room for each party to fall in these areas, <laughs> i.e. like Republicans could do even worse in urban areas, Democrats do even worse in rural areas, or or is this the end? What, what do y'all think? 
it's all going to come down to talking to people, right? Um, the reason that that e- either party falls is because they're not talking to people, um, and then they're not getting their message across. Also, you could say that sometimes uh, in our urban areas, there's a concentration of people who come from larger cities, right? So then they come to Charlotte, and that creates a, a larger amount of uh, Democrats. That being said, um, we have so many independent voters that there is an opportunity, I think, on both sides for that dynamic to change. Larry, what do you think? Are you guys, uh, can you guys fall any lower in the cities than you were in 2020? No, absolutely not. I think you're going to see some of those gains come back. I mean, look, you've got historic issues in the, in, in, in the urban areas. You've got disconnectedness from, from, from elected officials to their voters. Schools, they stayed closed and they kept their kids masked. We've looked at Florida, we've looked at Texas. You didn't have to do that. None of that was required. The fact that voters know that and they see an op- another option out there, they're going to punish these Democratic leaders. It's going to happen. Look, you can you can yell and scream at folks in Florida and Texas all you want, but the differences could not be more drastic. There was no discernible difference between those who locked their states down and those who did not. There was Aisha, learning loss. Aisha, it's like Larry, uh, that Larry gave you a lot to work with there. Is, uh, is there truth to that, that that message is going to resonate in urban areas or yes or no? You know, I think it really just uh, depends on people's experience. Um, as a person who just dealt with, um, I don't know if you want to call it long COVID for the last three months, I can't say that I quite agree with Larry. There is a whole population um, that's still concerned about their children's safety. You know, when I talk to my friends who are parents on a consistent basis, they're really concerned about the either lack of mask. They're concerned about the inability to stay home if their child is sick. Um, They're concerned about the the changing nature of the rules. So there are people who definitely never wanted the schools to shut down. And then there are parents who are concerned right now about their children's safety, well-being, and health. So I think as the ads start to run, people are going to run those ads against their reality. And we're going to see people still turn out for Democrats and vote for those who wanted to keep people safe. So that was Larry Shaheen and Aisha Du. We are wrapping up our first episode of the Inside Politics 2022 election podcast. Jim, why don't you run through some of the important dates coming up for listeners and for voters? Um, I think it's important for people to know that the primary election is uh, coming up pretty fast. It's on May 17th. And the unusual thing this year is that if there is a runoff in the primary, it'll be in July And that same day in July, which I think right now is July 26, will be the general election for the city council. So that's unusual. Most of these um, general elections are still in November, but for the city council, it's in July. And, uh, you know, early voting starts at the end of April. So we've covered a million city council elections, (laughs) Jim. Turnout is always low. For a July election, it is going to be stunningly small. I think turnout for most city council primaries, Charlotte primaries are like 15% or something like that. Bitzer sort of covered this a little bit, but uh, what struck with me today is an issue we're going to probably talk about more and more. It's going to loom larger than right now. Voters don't usually focus much on legislative races, but maybe this year they should. Next year, I think if you look around the country, legislatures could take up such crucial and divisive issues as voting rights, abortion, guns, gender issues, the so-called critical race theory. 
The state Supreme Court approved the legislature's redistricting maps for the House and Senate, and that did not sit well with Democratic Governor Cooper, so much so that he went out and endorsed the challenger in a Democratic primary against the Democratic state senator from Fayetteville, who has sometimes voted with Republicans, Kurt DeVere. Uh, So Cooper is not on the ballot this time, but in a way, he kind of is. Jim and Tim, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to this first episode of Inside Politics, Election 2022. This podcast will drop at least once every two weeks. As we get closer to Election Day in the fall, we expect to be coming at you more frequently. For Jim Morrill and Tim Funk, I'm Steve Harrison. Inside Politics, Election 2022 is a production of WFAE.